0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Misinformed. As always, I'm your host, Max Gomez. I don't really have a cohesive theme for this episode like I did for the few prior, but the conversations which I am very excited to bring to you today are with Dylan Green and Danny O'Hemming from the Peace Corps Club and El Zeski from the Cyber Collaborative. dear listeners, and uh, I really do mean that. I've, I've had a few people mention in the last week or so that uh, you reached out that they had listened to an episode, and, uh, and that really does mean a lot, I must say. So happy Friday, April 2nd to everybody. Uh, before we get into to today's main interviews, I do have one quick update from a friend of the pod, Lamise Maddie, uh, who wanted me to tell you all about another Mira Who's Cooking event coming up on April 16th at 4.30pm. Information can be found on the My Community event page, and of course, as with the last event, they will be posting about it on their Instagram as well. Um, I'm really excited to attend this next one. I went to the first one. It was one of the best Zoom events that I have been to this semester. And uh, obviously, I am biased in saying that. I am a part of the MIRA leadership team. But I really, I do, as objective as I can be, uh, it was a wonderful event. And so I hope to see all of you wonderful listeners joining us there as well on the 16th. Um, I think that just about covers it. So we can go ahead and... Oh, no, not again. Uh-huh. Student Council Director of Health and Wellness, Allison Silverstein. What do you how do you keep getting back in here?
1: I'm back. You left the Zoom information public again. So uh, uh, I just had to done. drop in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I have to wonder, is there anything health and wellness possibly motivated March now that it is April 2nd when people are hearing this that you're here to, to talk to me about?
1: Well, as a matter of fact, because March is over, that means that we've got some winners to announce. We do. I'm going to request that you insert a drum roll, so I'm just going to make the sound and hope that there's a better one coming up. (laughs) Our winner is the Trailblazing Tadpoles.
0: Yay.
2: Yay.
0: So yes, we're very excited to have our winning team and, it was it was a, a long month of health and wellness, but I hope that it was a good one for all those who participated, and that they picked up some habits that they will carry on even outside of March into you know motivated rest of your life. How about that?
1: Sounds like exactly what we were hoping for.
0: Also, a big shout out to second place team, personal friends of mine. I really appreciated their participating in it. So I also like there's there's been no good time for me to shout out my group of friends. So Lizzie, Katie, Christina, Alonzo, thanks for thanks for being a part of this.
1: And on the theme of shout outs, I'd love to give a shout out to the Health and Wellness Committee. Uh, we had an amazing event last weekend, the Health and Wellness Fair, for those of you who attended. Thank you so much for coming. It really was a great event. We hope to host it again sometime next year. So uh, keep your your ears open get ready for more health and wellness wonder wonderful programming
0: yeah and in that same vein thank you so much to my committee the community engagement committee for putting together the trivia night and then also to mira for their mira who's cooking event that helped out with our programming for this month and to the rock climbing club as well we're really happy that they were able to put some events together and help us out with our with our motivated march programming
1: and one more shout out to uh, Sarah and Noemi, who did so many amazing classes and really, I think, were big motivators in this Motivated March program. So thank you to both of them for running really great yoga
0: and mixed fit programs twice a week, every week. Which will be continuing as well. They do not stop with March. <laughs> and so I think, is there, is there, is there any other... I don't know, student council related things we need to talk about. I don't certainly have any sort of secret agenda here. I'm just wondering if maybe you know of something.
1: Well, since you asked if you are interested in joining student council for next year, there are some positions that will actually be up for election this spring. So if you or somebody you know, either in your program or in the school in general, that if you know someone that would be interested in joining student government, we do a lot of really great work, focused on the students, helping to fulfill what students need. Um, I know that uh, the health and wellness director position will actually be available for next year. So if you want to do fun shout outs like this,
0: you're free
1: <laughs> to uh, to run on in.
0: Um, yeah, so is that your your position was is open for election yep. this round? Yeah. Well, yep. mine is as well, community engagement officer.
1: Yes. I I personally will not be running. So uh, have at it. Have a wonderful <laughs> time. It's a good experience. I would highly recommend. And you get yeah. to meet people outside of your program, which for me has been one of the most wonderful benefits of yes, student council.
0: I agree. And I think that next year, student council is going to be a really exciting group to be a part of because, you know, we've all had this lapse in being able to do on campus in person things with all these amazing classmates of ours. And so you, you being the next student council, whoever listening to this, are going to be able to step into a student body who is really, really eager to participate in in doing things and being a part of things like motivated March and whatever that's going to look like in person.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So most up-to-date information can be found on the Student Council's My Community page as well as the Instagram. Um, announcements for this appear in StuCo Flow, and I, I believe probably this week at Miss as well, but certainly Instagram and my community pages for Student Council are the best place to go for up-to-date information. I believe nominations start next week. Next, next week, week being what is that like April 5th, I think is when they open. But definitely go check those pages to to fact check me on that one.
1: Yes, April fifth. Can confirm.
0: All right. Ask me about international bazaar.
1: <laughs> hey, hey, Max. Were there? Um, was there another event that you had going on that sounded super awesome?
0: Oh my gosh! How did you know? What's happening here? Whose show is this? Get get out of here! But not before I tell you about international bazaar, which is set to happen the weekend of April. April, bringing up my calendar. 24th, 25th. Um, so the International Bazaar is a long-standing mistradition um, of intercultural exchange through food and performance and art of other kinds. And there is also a photo contest involved. And so myself, my committee, Yolanda as the chair of the International Student Committee, and Allison Gruner as her position within student services um, are, are all working really hard.
1: Can't wait. Looking forward to the announcement in Stuco Flow.
0: Yes, absolutely. So there's going to be a ton more information coming out about this in the coming weeks. But as far as what our, our listeners can do with this is definitely go to those same my community and Instagram pages for student council, because we are going to be looking for um, students, faculty, staff to help make the event uh, what, it, what it's going to be, you know, this intercultural exchange. And so there will be a cooking event similar to the Mira Who's Cooking, where we're going to ask for people to teach dishes that are important to their culture or cultures that they are very familiar with. And then there is going to be an open mic night event as well. And so we're all still working out the finer details on that, of course, but just things to look forward to for this virtual iteration of a very long standing, important Miss tradition.
1: Well, if you need someone to make pierogies, let me know. My Polish roots, they've been coming out of me.
0: <laughs> well, with that, I've got a show to get to, so I'm going to have to kick you out of here again.
1: Oh, you mean I have to go back to working on my translations?
0: I uh, Unfortunately, but also in the long run of your career and your personal career interests, fortunately, yes, I do have to send you back to those things. Aw. Oh. But thank oh. you so much for stopping by.
1: Well, thanks for having me and not kicking me out immediately. <laughs>
0: My first official guests for today's episode are Peace Corps Club leaders, uh, Vice President Dylan Green, who did his Peace Corps service in China from 2018 to 2020, and Volunteer Coordinator Danny O'Hemming, who did her service in the same years in Ghana, 2018 to 2020. Dylan, Danny, thanks so much for joining me today.
2: Glad to be here. Thanks, Max. Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: So we're, of course, here to, uh, to talk about Peace Corps, but... I also just wanted to know, you know, who else you are to miss, uh, degree, semester, other clubs you're involved in, whatever that may be. Um, and Dylan, why don't you go first?
3: Yeah. So I am a second semester IEP student specializing in sustainability management. And yeah, president, or excuse me, vice president of the Peace Corps club. Um, kind of stutter there because,
2: as we were talking about earlier, pretty informal leadership roles in the club yeah. Yeah, I'm also a second semester or first year second semester uh joint MPA IEM uh Peace Corps is really the only club I'm part of sometimes I will also dabble in the gaming club um which is fun learning some new board games in that one um but otherwise yeah just spending most of my time just trying to get through the semester and Trying to get through the virtual uh, side of, of this, which is, which is pretty good.
0: The light is at the end of the tunnel. We know there's going to be primarily in person next year, so we just got to make it there. Yes, that's what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> well, thank you both for that. So so jumping over into Peace Corps, um, I am myself, I was going to say, I'm a, of course, I am myself a Peace Corps volunteer. I can't say of course, it's not like people would know that. Um, but yes, I was also a volunteer. Uh, Peace Corps volunteer, which you both know, um, in Ukraine for same years as as you both, 18 to 20. Um, So as I mentioned earlier, I personally feel like we're the lucky ones because I have friends who were in the group that came right before we got evacuated. And so I feel very grateful to have had the time that I did. Uh, But of course, it would have been nice if we didn't have to evacuate at all. Goes without saying. So I first, before we get into to the Peace Corps Club at MISS or your Peace Corps experiences at MISS. I just want to hear um, from you both a little bit about what what was your your Peace Corps experience like, what were your roles as volunteers, what were your sectors, and uh, yeah. Um, so I was in the education sector. I went in
2: as a middle school math teacher. Um, and when I say middle school, it was probably the grade levels, like the U.S. equivalent of Fourth, fifth, and sixth grade curriculum. Um, so my time I spent working with the first year middle school students, and it it was it was a time uh, going in with the U.S. mindset and you know trying to figure out how to do things without technology. Um, really, really was a difficult actually transfer. Like <laughs> PST uh, pre stage training. Sorry, used to the acronyms. Um, don't know if it really prepared me as much. Um, so first year working in uh, middle school math, um, there were some struggles, but uh, second year right before the EVAC, really started getting into the role of it, um, really missing it. Like you said, I could talk all day, but I'll go ahead and pass the mic to, to Dylan.
3: <laughs> yeah,
2: like, uh, like Danny,
3: I was also uh, an education volunteer. I was an English teacher at a college in Sichuan province, a city called Panjiahua. It's like pretty far south in the province, and it's pretty, pretty isolated as well. Um, China, as a Peace Corps country, was pretty well known, I think, and criticized by volunteers around the world as being poshwar. Um, we all served in cities, just 'Cause that's the way the program was organized and what works best for the Chinese context. And yeah, so I taught English to English majors, all levels, um, from like the freshmen that just came in to the the fourth year students. And I also I always say this as an all education volunteers should know what this is, um, English corner, but I say it more and I realize nobody outside of usually who's taught in China or is gone to school and China knows what it is, but I run my school's English Corner um, every week, which was just a informal club or space for students across the school and the community to come and practice their English, basically.
0: I think just about every volunteer, so maybe we'll start with just the three of us here in this room, and I can certainly speak for a lot more of the volunteers in Ukraine, but like everybody certainly tried their hand, at least at an English club, whatever the name might've been. So I know, you, Dylan, you had it. Danny, you're, you're nodding. You definitely did that, too.
2: Yeah, I, I I had an unofficial English corner in the sense of, like, my students would just come to my house just to practice their <laughs> English without letting me know. Um, so I would get, you know, right after school, school got out at 3 p.m., 4 p.m., students come knocking on my door, Madame, which is what I was known as, uh, Madame, Madame. And I'm like, what? what do you want? I'm trying to play with my cats and relax after you all tormented me in the classroom. Like, what do you want? And they just want to practice their English. Or I would have, um, I also did some reading literacy and I would have um, the equivalent of first grade and second grade students would come to my house and go, Madame, we want to read with their bare minimum English. Um, So yeah, definitely can agree whether it was official or not. I would agree that a lot of us had that little Mm. English corner happening.
0: Yeah. And uh, I guess just because as I said earlier, I was also a volunteer. So background on myself, I was a youth development volunteer in Ukraine in the city of Novovolinsk, which is just a couple hours bus ride north of Lviv, which is like the westernmost, pretty well-known tourist city. Um, And I worked at a technical college, Um, Which you could think of like a tech college here in the States, like trade school, but it was for students who were still in like K-12 or their K-11 education. So students could do that as an option instead of going to like a normal, normal in air quotes, uh, high school. Um, So when it comes to language how did that play into both of your services we were talking about offering english learning services for the people that that we were there to serve but uh, when it comes to both of your own development with the local languages um, did you have background going into it in those languages at all and how did that develop throughout your service yeah so i did
3: not have any background in the chinese language before arriving in china i just had whatever they taught me at our pre-service training, which was, you know, two and a half to three months living um, with the Chinese host family in uh, Chengdu, which is like where our headquarters for Peace Corps was and. I, I wouldn't say that was typical I'd say there's quite a few of us that came in without Chinese language ability, but there's quite a few volunteers that came in with a lot um, and had very, very good Chinese and. Yeah, as a result of living with a host family and where I lived, I did not have a lot of interaction with like foreigners outside of like Peace Corps. Um, my city yeah. only had one other Peace Corps volunteer and really no other foreigners. So it was a really good opportunity for me to like go out and use Chinese on a daily basis. But all this is to say I walked away with a really bad accent. Not a bad <laughs> accent, um, but That's- laced with dialect and uh different tones that i wasn't really aware of was not standard across china but yeah no um it was great and we like i don't know if this is how it worked for you guys but during pst like the first two weeks and for peace for china we were in a hotel and at the end of those two weeks you get like a little packet saying this is your host family and this is their background this is their level of english and uh my host parents like they own like a small restaurant business and it says they have like daily command of english and uh for those of you guys that don't know like Chengdu is like a pretty popular tourist destination for china um like both domestic and international tourists so i was like okay okay, you know maybe they do have like some sort of command yeah host dad comes to pick me up on the first day um And I realized it's like, I know no Chinese and he knows (laughs) almost no English. And it was was pretty terrifying for about 30 seconds before I realized I had a phone in my pocket and could use like a translator application. So it got a lot better from there. And um, luckily my little host brother spoke um, actually really good English. His English is much better than my Chinese, that is for sure. So we worked through it, but yeah, throughout the two years there, um, if you really wanted to you could do your job i think just fine without learning chinese but if you really wanted to like you know be a quote-unquote good volunteer and really kind of like involve yourself in the community yeah knowing chinese was so important for that uh just because yeah it shows goodwill, shows you're willing to struggle through something because most people are willing to struggle through english with you so you have to be able to show that you're also doing it and plus it's just i don't know your experience just becomes an, so much more rich after that.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so my favorite thing to learn English or practice my Chinese is I was going to play basketball every evening after class at the school courts, which is also how my, also how my Chinese became so influenced by the local dialect um, <laughs> because there's people from like the community and also students, but mainly people from like older guys from the community um, who's did not speak like super standard clean Mandarin, but it was fun. It was, yeah, that's, miss it a lot. Miss that aspect a lot. Of China is just being able to like learn and be super. How do I say it? Like saturated with like learning stuff constantly.
2: Um, it's kind of just in your face. You don't really have a choice. Um, yeah, I I wish my language acquisition experience was as uh, fluid as <laughs> as Dylan's experience. Um, I actually so you know, with the option of, um, or with joining Peace Corps, you have the option of joining where you want to go. Or more recently, they've implemented that rule. So I decided I wanted to go to Ghana because I thought I would have an easy in. Like my family from Ghana is from Ghana. Like my, both my parents, my grandparents are still there. I've got uncles and aunts. They're always speaking a local dialect called Tree, T-W-I spelled Tree. And I thought I would have an easy in where I could go to Ghana and I had a nice, I can't speak it myself, but I had a nice understanding of the language. So I thought I could go to Ghana and, you know, my language acquisition would be fine. So I get to Ghana. Tree is one of the like official local languages, but English is the actual official language that you can use for business. So I can get by with English, but... When they were posting me, or they asked where I wanted to be posted, I said, I would like to go somewhere where they speak tree. And the saving director said, okay, cool. We'll take that into account. Well, they ended up putting me on the the east side of Ghana where they don't speak any tree at all. And they actually speak a language called Ewe, um, E-W-E. And I don't know any of that, except for what they taught me what was it, two weeks before going in, two, three weeks before moving in. I unfortunately did not have a host family to stay with. I I lived on, or unfortunately, fortunately, depending on how you looked at it, I enjoyed living by myself, but the downside was I couldn't practice language with anyone. So I spent a lot of time with my kids. <laughs> Even if they didn't want me around, I would just, you know, stand by my kids. I'm like, hey, what's happening? What's going on? And they're just like, I don't know. And they would just stand there talking and i would try to catch whatever i could catch from whatever we learned at uh, pre-stage there was one time though where i had two kindergartners come into my small office and they were just grabbing books off the shelves and they were just going around saying agbele, agbele, which means book in the one thing i remembered because i was working on the library and i was able to tell them like hey give me the book or, like, what is this? Or, tell me this in English. But otherwise, language was not actually a major thing that I needed. Because English was an official language in Ghana. Mm-hmm. But in my village itself, Ewe was the main language like that parents understood. But the kids had to learn English. Because it was, it's just required for them to learn English. And so... In the classroom, I used English. Talking with teachers, I used English. Um, my AWIC gradually depleted within two weeks of moving to site. <laughs> um, I I wish I had put what, more effort, but honestly, I, I was more devoted to the teaching rather than mm. the language development. So that would, like, if I could go back, that'd be something that I would want to spend a lot more time is actually learning more of the language it, it all in all it was good fun um trying to greet people uh, gradually mm-hmm. as they came over to my house um you're like oh hey madame and i'm like which means you are welcome and they're like ah you got it <laughs> i'm like yes
0: <laughs> the uh the excitement on local spaces when you get a word right in their language especially if they're just meeting you too is like still to this day, one of the most heartwarming, like, feelings, you know, when they're just like, that they're so excited that, like, hey, <laughs> this guy actually knows how to say something. Don't even um, get me started on, on
2: market day when I went to a new stall, <laughs> and the market seller was like, you look Ghanaian, but you don't sound Ghanaian, mm-hmm. but then you're also speaking our dialect. <laughs> so, I,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. looks. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And, and Dylan, to what you were saying, too, I, I really resonate with what you um, said about it it being a show of goodwill. Um, I, I think that to me, I I saw that as a really important part of our goal, too. And we may start throwing those around. So for those of you who are not Peace Corps, goal two is to promote better understanding of Americans on the part of the people served. So the people in the countries where we went to serve. And then goal three is promote better understanding of the peoples of of where we served on the part of Americans. So this this doing this literally this right now is goal 3. Um so yeah, I saw that as a really big act towards goal 2 is is just being able to connect with with local people more and and I think that's something that you might find among a lot of volunteers, I certainly felt it myself. I, I truly have no way to objectively assess how good I actually was at the language. I never felt like it was good enough. Never. And, I, and I, like I said, I think that that's probably true for a lot of people, regardless of how fluent or not that they got, unless you just happen to be really, really good. I don't know. Um, and and also, like you were mentioning uh, that first interaction with your, your host dad who came to pick you up. I actually also had a host brother whose English was really good. He didn't know it at the start, because he had never met a native English speaker, but it was really good. And you know he got more confident as time went on. But yeah, the I have never felt more nervous in my life, I don't think, than the moments leading up to meeting my first host family. It's It was just not knowing what it's going to be like. And it wasn't about like, oh my gosh, what if they're mean? It wasn't anything like that. It was more of like, this whole experience is going to be so new. I had such limited way to communicate with them, but uh, and not knowing how that was going to play out and so I was just blessed with two incredible host families, both during uh, pre-service training and at site. I kept connections with both of them, even after I moved out and lived on my own. So I, Danny, you mentioned briefly there, the library that you had helped build or were helping build while you were there. Um, and I remember you talking about that at the Peace Corps Stories night where you were sharing about your service. Um, so I wanted to ask either of you both of you what your and this is a hard question to answer at least it would be for me what what one thing you accomplished there that you are most proud of and I don't really like putting it out there as like the word proud because some people have differing relationships with that word um because I I don't know I don't like saying things that I feel super proud about because it makes me feel like I'm being arrogant uh but But I think you guys get what I'm trying to ask you here. So, like, one thing that you accomplished while you were there that you were really, really grateful or happy to have been able to do?
2: Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned my library, and I mentioned the library. And so, you would think that my library would actually be what I'm proud of. But actually, (laughs) no. Um, I'm just proud that I made it through it. And yeah, it's a little selfish. But I mean, I I can't go through this without saying that I, I did think about leading after my first year because I even though I went in with a teaching degree and I went in with a math degree and I thought I was qualified, it's a completely different environment. I mean, I was working with stick, literal sticks and stones to try to teach these kids, um, which is not something I've ever done before. So by the end of my first year, I was thinking, I don't know if I'm really, you know, helping myself or helping these kids or helping the teachers in any way like, what am I doing here? And so I contemplated leaving, but then the second year started up again. And I said, you know what, let me, you know, reevaluate. What am I doing? Let's, you know, I'm starting this library and that helped a lot to make me stay because I was like, all right, I've started this library and, you know, school you're starting, let's use the library as a timeline, as a gauge to see how I'm doing. Um, and so, you know, that the library was helpful in getting me to stay. But what was even more helpful was reevaluating what I was doing and seeing the impact on just like one or two of the kids. I mean, I had in my second year, I had a class of 16 kids and my first year was only 10 and 10 kids. I was like, oh, God, this is the end of the world. So 16 could not have been better. But I reevaluated and said, you know what, let's just work on making two kids happy. And, you know, that that was fine for me. That was an accomplishment for me where I felt like two kids were succeeding. Then it got to the point of three kids were succeeding, four kids. And, I mean, I never got to all 16, but at least, you know, I was gradually increasing that that number. And for me, that was an, like a personal accomplishment where I started to feel like I was actually helping instead of just like, going in and trying like we throw around like the savior complex and I'm not going to lie and say I didn't have a little bit of that um but I started to feel more like I was doing something for them rather than for me yeah that's yeah no, that's awesome Danny
3: I think you should be proud of that um because I, I think I think sometimes too it's not always talked about after everybody's come home how how low you can get doing points in service, like looking back, at, you do kind of realize that Like a ton of did a ton of awesome things. Hopefully, you helped some people along the way, and I think for a lot of people too, you learn a lot about yourself. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's really talked about that often. Like how how hard service can be in different aspects for different people. Um, so yeah, I think you should be proud of yourself. That's awesome. I, thanks for sharing that because i mean i i certainly had my low points too yeah especially like living in china as a pretty run-of-the-mill white guy like you don't have it that hard from uh like a cultural standpoint i don't think um at least like not in a way that you know some other volunteers that don't look like me may have had it um but yeah, living in such an isolated city and not having a lot of interaction with um, people that you know spoke English or knew a little bit about like my background growing up in the United States, it was hard. So I found it a, a difficult adjustment to make. But something I'm really proud of in service. Yeah, making it through, that's a good one. That's a hard one to top. I'm really proud of uh, each, each summer we, as in we as uh, Peace Corps, China volunteers, at least, you know, in recent years, before they closed the program, and I don't know what it was like when they first started, but we would do a lot of um, teacher trainings during the summer, we call it summer training, and each province that we operated in, and Peace Corps China was in four different provinces, would do it a little bit differently, but basically, uh, me and 11 other volunteers, we went to a different city within our province, and that city's and the county that that city resided in, um, their education department would select teachers from schools um, and then we'd all gather for a training. And basically us as volunteers, our job was to kind of like walk them through what we would do in the classroom as far as like different teaching methods. There's a lot of uh, wrote English memorization that occurred in Chinese schools. in schools around the world but so our job was to kind of like introduce them to the different activities and um, techniques that we would use in the classroom which tended to be a little bit different Um, and I think it was just super important to me because it was two weeks pretty much like nine to five like trainings all day and then in the evenings like you prepare your lessons for the next day because like nothing would go right At least the first couple of days the teachers were just so enthusiastic to be there and they'd give you such instantaneous feedback that you would like get home or like get to the hotel while we're staying in the evening we're like okay we need to like completely change what we're gonna do tomorrow and you just stay up like till 9 or 10 lesson planning and then just rinse repeat for two weeks and so it's completely exhausting super hot and humid but It was just so rewarding because all the teachers that showed up and we, it was like over 140 teachers that came to this training from like preschool to um, elementary, middle school, high school. There's even some like college professors, like teachers there, instructors uh, that they taught basically young adults how to become like preschool teachers. So there's, you know, a wide range and they were just so enthusiastic to be there. Like, it was, like, similar to Danny. Like, you know, you have good days and bad days in the classroom. You don't know if all your students really want to be there or if they're really learning or if you're even helping them learn. But then this summer training, uh, they are all just so engaged, and they, like, you actually felt like you are doing something with your service, which is just not, like we just said, like a feeling you get all the time. And, that, yeah, that was by far the most, I guess, something I look at back on it, but, you know, actually – Actually help someone out, like we actually did something, which yeah, it's kind of rare. It's a fleeting feeling at best, too.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely relate to a lot of what both of you said, Danny. Like you were mentioning, just reshaping what our idea of success in actually being able to help where we're placed, uh, it can it was it's hard because sometimes it feels like you're lowering your standards. You know, like you were saying, I can't reach all these students in this class, but like if I'm just reaching a couple and i think that it is something that can be hard to hard to get perspective on if you're if you haven't been in a situation like that but just understanding that it, it is just a reshaping of what we see success as volunteers as for me at my school um cuz i was youth development i wasn't put into any sort of formal structure to be a teacher so i had to just kind of work my way into the ecosystem there and i had to figure that out myself um and eventually that just kind of came down to interacting with students like very informally. I tried to institute a couple different clubs and stuff, but it was really hard for me to work into the schedule there. And so sometimes it just came down to like just asking students like, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? And it, I actually had to you know talk about this a lot with my fellow volunteers there that helped me realize there's a chance that I'm one of the only adults that are actually going like Asking them how they're doing, you know, asking them what they think about their studies or, you know, like their opinions and valuing them as people, you know. And I and I think that's true for the way students are treated in a lot of schools here as well. Um, so, you know, being able to acknowledge that as, you know, and then students started to like come and chat with me. And that was acknowledgement that they did find my presence valuable, right? Um, so it wasn't about like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm not able to get this English club going. Like that felt like a failure and realizing, but those, like those smaller things that you don't see as like a formal success are actually really important too. Um, and then Dylan, like you were mentioning, when you do get to to facilitate some of those bigger things, like a teacher training or like a summer camp, um, it is, it is super fleeting, but you hold on to those feelings too. They, they keep you moving in your Peace Corps service. I think they're so important. Yeah, no, it's.
3: I left that project, like, ready to, like, run through a brick wall, like, my third semester. I was, like, ready to go. I was so pumped to, like, go back and teach. Um, But, yeah, I'm sure we've all experienced this, but, like, I think in Peace Corps, too, like, there's always the, you know, there's always, like, that rock star volunteer from some random cohort years past that, like... You know the fish just grew bigger since they left and you would think that they like built the country that you're living in by themselves like they did all this amazing work and it's you no know, that's just not the reality for a lot of us and so it's that is kind of what i think i mean it's definitely a trap that i fell into um of like measuring success and what it actually looks like in your context um yeah and same thing either i mean i had a very similar experience with you guys it's just english club was required by my school it was going before I got there. I show up, I ran it, but I couldn't really get any projects going outside of that. So like, for me, it was just like, like you said, Max, like the simple things, being approachable, asking people how they are just like, I don't know. I would go to some lunch with my students a lot. Cause like everybody's got to eat. So be a good opportunity for me to bother my students and maybe practice a little bit of Chinese practice, a little bit of English, but Yeah, those small little things are like probably like the best part of
0: service. And you touched there on something that I remember us having a lot of conversations about, and I'm sure it's not unique to our two Peace Corps countries as well. But the importance of not comparing your service to others and not seeing one person's bar of success as a volunteer to another person's and whether that be a volunteer who served in your town years prior that all the people in your town keep talking about, or whether that be somebody you're currently serving with who is just, everybody's service is so different. Everybody's measure of success is going to be different and that doesn't make anyone less valuable than another's. It's just the product of your situation. And that is a lesson that can be extrapolated to the rest of your life, I think. Yeah, one thing that always stuck with me, I don't remember who said it. I wish I could cite them. Somebody in my cohort, but it was that uh, comparison is the thief of joy. And that stuck with me throughout the rest of my service. It didn't, you know, very easy to lose sight of that. I mean, even if you actively know it, and I and I had that quote in my head the entire time I was doing service, your your mind will still fall into the traps of being like, oh, my God, look at that awesome event they just did. So, yeah. One thing that I I do want to give you both a chance to talk briefly about is that uh, in the spirit of goal three, I think both of the countries or areas that you were serving A lot of stereotypes do exist about them here in the States. Of course, we have this view of this totalitarian communist China here that a lot of Americans hold. Um, You know, Danny, I think that African countries in general are often treated as a monolith, and we just have one particular view of what it's like there. So is there any stereotype in particular, or maybe just generally that you would like to break that you think a lot of people here might be unaware of? if they hadn't lived there for as long as you both had?
2: First thing that I think of, I mean, I, I don't see this happening, like luckily in the Miss community, but like outside of the MIS community, just in regular society, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people are say, oh, I'm like, oh, I'm going traveling. Oh yeah, I've traveled to like different countries. I've traveled to China, I've traveled to France, I've traveled to Africa, and then I'm sitting there going, Just as you said, Max, people think of Africa as like this one big place, but really Africa has, has countries in it too, just like Europe, just like Asia. And so I think it's not much a stereotype as much as just thinking of like our own English language and how we need to fix that error of classifying Africa as this one big country because it's full of so much diversity. I mean, I was only able to explore so much just within Ghana itself. And just hearing from other volunteers who were in the North of Ghana versus myself who was in South of Ghana and the difference between the diversity that's in the South of Ghana alone versus North Ghana. And just, um, so just within the country alone, there's so much diversity. So just imagine how much more diversity is within Africa as a whole and within those individual countries themselves. And then there's also the stereotype of when you think of Africa, you think of, oh, poor them. They need our help. But I mean, that shouldn't be the case. There are so many countries. I mean, Peace Corps has already selected so many countries that are also in need. There, If you ask the volunteers who were in Ghana, um, so, Ghana, there's debate about this, but Ghana was actually the first Peace Corps country. And if you ask some volunteers today, some of the volunteers from my cohort would say, Ghana doesn't need Peace Corps anymore. Like, Peace Corps needs to leave Ghana because, you know, it's had enough. It is a sustainable country. Like, they're doing fine. They don't need the Americans to come in anymore. And I would. I would sort of agree. I would sort of be on the same mindset that yeah, Ghana is doing fine. Um, But at the same time, I didn't get to explore all of Ghana. So, you know, I can't really confirm that thought. Um, But yeah, I just say like the stereotype of like, oh, poor them, like, let's go to Africa, but rather let's go to this country um, should be something that we start to incorporate within um, our language oh man uh, yeah
3: so many uh, this is this is something that I think I, I struggle with a lot when it comes to talking about my China experience because yeah I mean I think it, I mean it's even hard to have this conversation in the context of you know this wave of anti-Asian racism we're seeing in the United States right now and I think something that it has made me realize is just, you know, how baked in to our society that this kind of sentiment is and has been for so long um, whether it's like you know, the exclusionary policies, internment, like there's so many examples and I never really viewed like the silly questions that people would ask about my China experience previously in the context of anti-Asian racism. But, you know, now I can't kind of unsee. I think it plays a huge part of what I get asked about on a daily basis. Or not a daily basis, but at least when people talk about my experience. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. But I guess if I could dispel any stereotype about China, it would just be like, they're just like people that I have found... Like, with my experience, specifically, like, my friends and host families were just, like, it was just so similar to American culture in a lot of ways. As far as just, like, social culture, I found that with my host family, like, at the end of the day, most of the time, they just would, like, hang out with each other, maybe watch some TV, they would eat dinner together, enjoy a good meal. That was their idea of having a good time, was, like, gathering friends and family and, like, going out to eat. And, like, whether that's, like hosting people at their home or like meeting up somewhere else outside of the home in like a different third space and that honestly just didn't feel that different than my life in the United States like that's what i would do like i would just gather with friends and family in my like f- free time and you know hopefully you're working hard enough during the day that you can't do that stuff in the evening and have a good time and afford to treat your friends but like that was what seemed like kind of um kind of like i guess essential to like my host family and friends was just, you know, making time to spend with the important people in their life, which I think is very much the same for any of us in on this conversation right now. And I think the reason I picked that is just because, yeah, it's just, we see it in the media all the time. It's like very easy to demonize, you know, China specifically. Um, We've seen that on the previous administration Dare I say that the current one isn't that much better at it? Maybe not explicitly saying racist things like Kung Fu or other things, but, you know, the rhetoric and the very, you know, combative rhetoric is still there. And I think that, you know, kind of trickles down to the rest of society and how people behave and the things they say and act. So I guess that would be my, my stereotype is just people like you and I, that you know, very similar habits and wants if not the same.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is one of the biggest takeaways that just about every volunteer or maybe like every good volunteer, I don't want to slap that label on or that, that qualifier on it, but so many people come away with just the realization that people are just people living their lives wherever they may be. And just because the way of living looks different at face value, what we see in the news, what we see in movies you actually go there and you spend time with those people they're really just like the rest of us and that sounds extremely cliche but i think that it's something that a lot of people don't acknowledge and that it you know it can exist in our in our unconscious biases right of what we expect people to be like based on what we see through their portrayal in american media um yeah i mean that that was i think kind of is really my bigger takeaway too for ukraine. i think there's plenty of stereotypes about what this post-soviet terrible living must be and that people are all so cold and never smile and they're always stoic and sad and it's like no, they're just people living their lives and they look a lot like ours, you know? They care about having a good time with their family. Um you know, some of the challenges they face are different than some of ours, but overall, you know, they're not waiting for any saviors. Peace Corps or not to come rescue them from terrible lives. No, they're just living like the rest of us. And yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. There is a lot of other things that I wanted to chat with you both today, but uh, unfortunately we don't have time. So we're going to have to save that for another episode, which I did want to bring to everybody. You both as Peace Corps club leaders and to the audience for Miss radio at large is that over summer, I do plan on producing an episode, uh, a round table with Peace Corps volunteers, Um, bigger than this too, I'm thinking like three or four, so we can all just chat about our services and also about evacuation. So much of this incoming class of fall 2020 was Peace Corps evacuees because we were all like, what what are we supposed to do now? I guess we'll go to grad school and here we are. Um, So that is a conversation I really do want to have here on Miss Radio. So just putting that out there for everybody to be aware of coming out over the summer months. And then I believe we also have an event coming up that maybe one of you two would like to talk really briefly about.
3: Yeah. Um, Can I plug two events? Is that against the rules? Okay. So on April 15th at 6 p.m. Pacific time, uh, Peace Corps Club, which all three of us here today are part of, as well as uh, Mira, which maxes... (laughs) The vice president of, I believe. Uh, We're co-hosting a trivia night for anybody who wants to come from this. There'll be prizes. Uh, I didn't get the chance to attend the trivia night that occurred in the fall semester. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. And we have some, place like that we have prizes lined up. I think it's just going to be good fun night in general. Um, hopefully it's not going to be just another Zoom event on your calendar it will actually be like something to participate in and enjoy. And then on April 29th, actually, Peace Corps is hosting a story jam. Um, same time, 6 p.m. Pacific time, April 29th. Uh, we're just going to get Peace Corps volunteers together, whether they're from this or from like the local community to share stories about their service and a bit more specific, not so high level macro like our conversation today, but kind of gonna get into like some specific funny stories or whatever was kind of stuck out to them about their service. So themes for both events to be announced to come shortly.
2: And yeah, look for more information on that soon. And just to jump in real quick on the trivia, um, I myself will be a host. I myself am a trivia addict, but I am stepping out of the competition to host. Um, I have watched my share of Jeopardy, Rest in, Rest in Power, and Rest in Peace, Alex. I've watched Wheel of Fortune. I've watched Family Feud. I've watched about any trivia game that you can think of. So I'm going to try my best to fulfill the role of host and promise a good time. So hopefully everyone listening can be in attendance for that.
0: Yeah, well, I look forward to seeing you both at those events. And uh, once again, Dylan, Danny, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thank you, Max. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us.
0: Joining me next is Elle Zeski, graduate assistant for the Cyber Collaborative at MISS, here to talk with me a bit about what they do there at the Cyber Collab and to promote their new podcast. Elle, thank you so much for joining me today.
4: Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here.
0: So, uh, of course, you are a graduate assistant, like I just mentioned. Uh, but you are much more than that To at the Institute in the world at large. So uh, if you would, please go ahead and introduce yourself a little further.
4: Well, thank you. Uh, yeah. Hi, I'm Elle Zesky. I am a first year MBTS student. Um, I also serve as a graduate assistant for the newly formed Cyber Collaborative. Um, and here, basically, I help and coordinate everything that Cyber Collaborative is kind of doing. So I uh, work on the website. I uh, edit the podcast, edit our videos, I also help coordinate speakers and get some working opportunities and research opportunities um, out to students. Um, and we're really trying to make, you know, cyber education, and cyber resources on campus as accessible as possible.
0: Yeah. And we'll definitely get a little bit more into uh, the goals, the objectives, you know, what it is you're working on at the at the Cyber Collaborative in a little bit. But I also wanted to ask first a little bit more about the history of this would you call it an office or this group on campus? Um, I know it was. This is the newest iteration of the cyber initiative, I think, right? That was launched in like May twenty thirteen. It was so. It's it's not. It the cyber collaborative is new, in that you just launched it last semester, fall twenty twenty. But it is a more longstanding effort on campus.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, the Middlebury Institute has been you know long long interested in developing a cyber uh, academic, I guess, initiative on campus. Um, And we, the cyber collab was launched last semester. And so far, we've been able to, you know, bring a lot of speakers and a lot of different opportunities to campus. And we're hoping to work with other um, uh, Green Mountain College uh, universities and work together on different kinds of opportunities that we can all work together on to bring to the actual institute itself.
0: Yeah, definitely. And now the cyber collab is, of course, not just yourself. I understand there is a faculty member and then a a visiting fellow. Is that right?
4: Yeah. So we have a Fulbright Scholar, which is Robert Subak, and he is teaching the cybersecurity class this semester, which is a really great, very interesting class for anyone interested in especially introductory cybersecurity things. Um, And then we also are being led by our coordinator, Philip Blake, and he does a lot of the coordination, a lot of, you know, gathering speakers, a lot of, you know, organization.
0: So what is it about cybersecurity that interests you? What brought you to the cyber collab?
4: So I have been working in cybersecurity since I was about um, 18 years old. Um, I began working in a secure operations center called MCPC out in Erie, Pennsylvania during undergrad. And for me, cybersecurity has always been somewhere where I didn't think I would really find a foothold because, you know, I was being a female, you don't see a lot of females in cybersecurity, Um, but also because I was really put off that I wouldn't understand, you know, the ones and zeros coding aspect of cybersecurity, Mm -hmm. but there's just so much more to that. Um, It's not all ones and zeros. And you'll hear that on our podcast over and over and over again, that there's so much more to cybersecurity than the technical aspects of it. But I was brought to cybersecurity because of my love for online video games and video game platforms. And I really saw that there was a lot of um, baiting of kids online. Mm
2: -hmm.
4: And I, the older I grew and the more that I, you know, video gamed, um, I realized that these platforms are perfect opportunities to really go after, you know, the population that's most vulnerable, and that's kids. So really, my my love for children and my, you know, career uh, hope to do something that helps protect kids really brought me to cybersecurity and cyber, um, you know, cyber topics in general.
0: Now, are you referring more to like actual, now, feel free to correct me if I'm using this phrase wrong, uh, <laughs> like phishing scams where people online trick kids into giving them their parents credit card information? Or are you talking more about like, predatory business models like loot boxes that uh that some video games employ to just get more and more money out of their often underaged player base
4: so i'm more predatory in the in a way of um i guess like child pornography yeah. um kidnapping mm-hmm. things like that human trafficking um so Getting into cybersecurity through, you know, thwarting online predators was something that um, originally drew me to this. And it, it then drew me to working in kind um, human trafficking in undergrad as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So as far as the events, speakers, workshops that you've done so far since you launched the Cyber Collab last semester, is there anyone in particular that you were really, really excited about or with a, a topic that just really interested you more than more than others?
4: Yes. So, okay, so we have so much coming to the Institute. We just had um, Chris Painter, and he works with cyber diplomacy, and especially with, um, I guess, I like to call it cyber equity. And that's making sure that, you know, but just like anything, there's always um, an equitable I guess viewpoint when it comes to creating policy, you have to make sure that nations and um, groups of people have enough resources at their fingertips in order to make equitable policy that you know protects an overarching amount of people. So, mm-hmm. um, Chris Painter does a lot with that, and that's something that I'm really um, passionate about: is making sure that we have, um, we can bring cyber infrastructure to groups and societies and uh, different countries that might not have access to them. Also, we will also be having uh, Jacqueline Schneider coming in, and she is a one of the biggest names in cyber policy right now, and she's going to be coming in to talk about cyber policy and wargaming, and wargaming is another huge mm-hmm. passion of mine. Mm-hmm. And then also we had alumni um, uh, William Altman coming in from CyberQ to talk about um, cyber insurance, which if you haven't heard of cyber insurance, it's such an interesting corner of the market that really missed students should capitalize on if they're looking for jobs.
0: So one of the other things that I am really interested in in uh, when it comes to efforts of the CyberCollab is that it is looking to try and cross programs and bring this, uh, the idea of cybersecurity, the importance of it, you know, across degree programs at miss. I myself can still only wrap my head around it being a big part of um, the Non-Proliferation and Terrorism Studies program. So what are some other programs where you see it it bleeding into a little bit where you'd really like to try and get more interest maybe from like IPD, like, hey, IPD students, I know you don't talk about this much, but please, like, here is why it's important.
4: So I really think that it's important to any program here at Miss, honestly, because cybersecurity, and Chris Painter, I think says it best, is somewhere where our students can make a difference. It doesn't really matter your experience level outside, as long as you get your foot in the door. And especially like using your example, IPD, you know, developing policy around cybersecurity is probably the biggest hurdle that's happening right now. And we see a lot of things where people are talking about censorship or different rules that are applying in the constitution that don't apply online and things like that. Um, And it really boils down to how do we commingle, uh, you know, kind of general laws of the land with cyberspace that's kind of like the wild, wild west right now. And uh, so, for me, anywhere that's interested in keeping spaces where people are the most vulnerable safe, you, you have a spot in cybersecurity somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, uh, you know, can be clear to anybody seeing the trajectory of the importance of the internet um, in j- just about any field you're studying, at least at MISS. Um, and maybe that's just more apparent because we've had this year of. Of virtual distance learning. But I think as we move forward, I mean, we're always, always, we will likely for a very long time be collaborating over digital workspaces like Google Drive and things like that. And so um, that has nothing to do with whether or not you're studying, uh, you know, terrorism or not. Like that's where our work exists. And for that reason, we should be a little bit more concerned about cybersecurity.
4: Right, exactly. And like I was saying before, you know, cyber and technology is an accessibility thing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you can bring education and a lot of education to remote places that might not have access to it if you understand how cyber anything works how so cyber infrastructure and how to protect it um, if, you, if you're looking to become a teacher or an educator of any kind understanding how to keep your students safe online at this and especially after this year is proving to be paramount
0: yeah absolutely um, so one thing that i i think we've alluded to thus far in our conversation but perhaps not, I feel like we have, is the podcast you have recently launched. The second episode will have just come out several days prior to this. This is coming out on Friday, April 2nd. And so so your second episode of your podcast called The Collab, right? Yes. Will have just come out on Wednesday, March 31st. The first episode, we are going to go ahead and post today today being April 2nd um, same day as this episode of misinformed so if anybody is interested in um, going to listen to the collab as well you're going to find it right here on this feed and I highly recommend everybody go do that Uh, but to to get a little bit more interest into uh, into that podcast can you tell me a little bit about some of the conversations you've been having there and again just like with the events any any that really stick out to you that you were really excited to talk about
4: yeah, so our first episode features William Altman, and he is a MIT alumni, and he works as um, a cybersecurity advisor, I want to say. Pardon me, I forget his exact title, but um, at CyberCube, and CyberCube does a lot with um, cyber insurance and selling cyber insurance to uh, companies, and for me, that's such an interesting corner of the market, like I was talking about before, that I had never even thought of. And after exploring it, there's just limitless opportunities for people and students who are good writers and good public speakers and are, you know, really forward-looking and really forward-leaning on, you know, thinking about what's next for uh, protections of, you know, even small companies.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, so as I just mentioned, their first episode, you can find here on our Miss radio feed, but also it is available on your blog, which can be found where exactly?
4: It can be found. So you can actually get to it just by looking up the cyber collaborative at Miss. And if you scroll all the way down to our like newsroom tab, you'll see the collab. If you go there, there'll be an announcement. And then also you can find it on our blog, which is called Bytes News from the Cyber Club, which can be found at the same link.
0: Oh, yeah. Perfect. I found it right there. So easy. <laughs> um, so, you know, go ahead, listen to the first episode here on Miss Radio, but then make sure you go check out this blog because that is where the rest of them are going to be posted. There will be one extra one at this point in time. And <laughs> uh, yeah. Is there any other places? I know the the blog is there on the Middlebury Miss website, but is there anywhere else anyone can go to make sure that they're staying on top of when there's new episodes or um, any other like events that you have going on?
4: Yes. So we have an Instagram um, and it's a pretty active Instagram because we're always doing things here at the club.
1: Mm
4: -hmm. Um, And it's the cyber underscore collab. Um, And here you'll see our most recent posting, um, which is with Jacqueline Schneider. Um, we were co-hosting that with with MISS, which is I'm also the president of, and we also have a YouTube channel where if for some reason you are too busy and you miss one of our events, um, you can go and watch our the recordings of the events at our YouTube channel, which is also the Cyber Collaborative and that's that's pretty much everywhere you can find
0: us yeah well that is great to know because it sounds like there's been a lot of cool events that i have missed as well so i'm definitely gonna Mm -hmm. go ahead and check out that youtube channel because i think these are super super interesting topics um so one last quick question before we go al you mentioned your love of video games can you give me a top three and that it could be top three that you're playing right now. It could be top three video games that have been influential to you throughout your history of gaming. However you want to interpret that, give me a top three.
4: Oh man, okay. So I'm a huge Bethesda fan. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to go my number one all time, all time is is the Fallout franchise, specifically okay. Fallout 4 or New Vegas. Um, and then I'll have to go with Skyrim. <laughs> <laughs> And then, kind of a wild card, I'm going to go with Bioshock
0: Infinite. Okay. Why would you say that Once a wild card? That was also a pretty big deal when it first came out.
4: Well, I don't know. It's kind of, I guess maybe it's not a wild card, but it's kind of just something that, um, it doesn't quite break genre, but it's a pretty long video game. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe people haven't played it because <laughs> it's so long and story-driven. So.
0: Uh-huh. Well, I think those are three wonderful recommendations. If anybody is looking to sink hundreds of hours into a new hobby, those <laughs> are all those are all pretty big games. But um, well, thank you, Elle, for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation. And once again, I, I hope everybody goes to check out your podcast and, and make sure to follow all of your social medias at the Cyber Collaborative as well.
4: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. and We're excited to see everyone there at the next event. <laughs>
0: Well, here's the fun part. The fun part meaning it's midnight uh the night before this episode releases and I, it's the last part of the podcast that I have to record. Uh it's the part where I thank you all for listening to this episode. As I said in the beginning, it really does mean a lot to me and where I also mention that none of the opinions expressed by myself or my guests throughout this episode reflect that of the institute uh officially. Um and that I still don't have the the rights the song i don't even know if i need to be saying that i just keep doing that anyway like it has any sort of legal protection uh it doesn't but um you know they i feel like they're not really likely to notice that we're using it so you know there you go thanks for listening